0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, we ask um, for your help, that your Spirit might give us open hearts and open minds to receive your Word this day. Do these do these things so that we might see the urgency of judgment, but also uh, the opportunity that we have to find salvation in your great promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well. I did say, you know, I spent the last 10 days away, and it is actually quite good to be back. Now, as I said, for those of you who don't know, of all places, I was up in Sydney for the last 10 days. And I'm going to say something pretty controversial, something that I know some of you will not like, especially being very proud Melburnians. I, I actually kind of like Sydney. Uh, it, it is a, I know, I, Naomi, I see your face, right? I know. I knew that's how you'd feel. And as a Melburnian, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say that Sydney people are rude, and the city is disgusting, or that, as they would say, it's really chat, whatever that means. But, but Sydney has this kind of work hard, play hard culture that I kind of like. But don't worry, uh, at heart, I'm still a Melbourne boy. I love our city. You see, you know, when I look at Melbourne, my heart is strangely warmed, right? I see, I see a cultured city where people are actually nice, not like those barbarians up north. Uh, there's Brisbane, of course. James, I know, it's watching right now. I mean, let's face it, Brisbane, nothing more than a country town with traffic lights. And, you know, when I, when I look at Melbourne, right, it's the best city in the world. You know, we, we got a little bit frustrated when we became the second most livable city, but we, st- we don't like to mention that. We're still the most livable city. When I look at Melbourne, man, I see a city that I call home. But have you ever wondered... When God looks at our city, what do you think He sees? When God looks at Melbourne, does He see the world's most livable city? You know, I hate to say it, but I suspect that when God looks at Melbourne, He sees a very different city from what I see. Because here's the brutal truth. Beneath the cultured facade of politeness and respectability, the truth is, Melbourne is a city full of pride. We are cultured on the outside, but actually I think we're pretty corrupted on the inside. I mean, we walk with a superiority in our struts, but we we hide a sinfulness in our hearts. You see, for all our culture and all our charm, here's the truth. Melbourne is a city under judgment. Last week, the Lord came down, He looked at Sodom and what did He see? He saw a city of sin. And now, in Genesis 19, he comes to destroy that city in judgment. And we look at the city of Sodom and we wonder to ourselves, well, what will God do with our city? Will he destroy Melbourne in judgment as well? And if he comes in judgment against the city of Melbourne, the city which we love, what hope is there for us? Is there a way for us to escape the judgment of God? Part one living in the city of sin. Well, what does it look like? What does it look like to live in this city? Now, in Genesis 19, if you read Genesis 19, right, we might get the impression that Sodom, it's a bit like Gotham City, right? I mean, not a good place, like a lawless city ruled by criminal gangs. But, but actually, I suspect Sodom might actually look a bit more like Melbourne, Think back, right? Genesis 13.10, Sodom was described as being as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Just like Melbourne, this city is prime real estate, right? And that's exactly what it is. It's where Lot chose to live. And guess what? That's exactly who we find in verse 1, sitting in Sodom's gateway. Now, you ought got to understand, right? In that culture, it was the leaders of a city who sat in its gateway. And who's sitting there now? Our B great character who lurks in the darkness, pops up from time to time, where do we find him now? Sitting in Sodom's gateway, sitting on Sodom's throne. But just think about how far he's come, right? Back in chapter 13, he chose the land that was facing Sodom because it looks so pretty. Then in chapter 14, where do we find him? Suddenly, he's actually living in Sodom. And now, the last time we ever hear of Lot in Genesis, chapter 19, he ain't just living in Sodom, no, he's ruling the joint. He's like that young worker, right, who, who at the beginning in, in third year law school, it's like he sees the corporate life, then he enters the corporate world, and then he's climbing the corporate ladder and he doesn't even realize it. Step by step by step, he's drawn away from God into the larks and lavish lifestyle of Sodom. And yet, here's what's confusing, right? Not everything about Lot is lost. Not everything about Lot is lost. You see, he may have given his heart over to Sodom, but, but for some reason in 2 Peter 2, he's called a righteous person. A right, Righteous is the last word I'd use to describe Lot. But, but here we're going to catch a bit, like, let me tell you, it's a really small glimpse of why. In verses 1 to 3, look with me, Uh, as soon as Lot sees the angels of God, what does he do? He welcomes them just like Abraham welcomed them back in chapter 18. See, Abraham, what did he do? He bowed to the ground. He, He offered to wash their feet and give them rest. And now, well, one chapter later, Lot does exactly the same thing. He extends the very same hospitality. Now, we might see this as no big deal, But what we don't appreciate is, in that time and culture, in the ancient Near East, hospitality wasn't just a nice thing. No, it was a mark of righteousness. Welcoming the stranger isn't just good. No, no, it's godly. And and in verse 3, Lot seems to know something that the angels don't. He seems to know that the public square isn't safe. So what does he do? He says, no, come home. Take refuge in my home. Hide there it's quite strange right we don't have a good impression of Lot and yet for all his faults there's still something righteous about this man I mean Lot's right the city isn't safe it's this Sodom is a city of sin and now we see just how bad it is in verses 4 and 5 the men of Sodom surround Lot's house and demand to gang rape these two angels I don't know whether they know that they're angels, but they see two men entering the public square and they demand to rape them. They're like long-term prisoners, sexually deprived who are preying on that newest inmate. And can I tell you, this is not about love. This is about lust and power, pure and simple. You see, the sin highlighted in these verses is wanton sexual promiscuity wanton sexual promiscuity. And yes, it includes homosexual activity. I love Melbourne. And our city deeply cares about the rights of of the LGBTI community. And can I tell you, there's a lot to be commended about that. There's a lot that's right about that. But it is the case that when the average Melbourneian reads this chapter, reads this condemnation of homosexual activity, it sounds pretty hateful, doesn't it? It sounds pretty offensive to equate homosexuality with the sort of sexual violence we see here in Sodom. But can I invite you to take a step back for a moment? In these verses, God is saying that all of us, gay or straight, are actually sexually broken, without exception, without exception. It sounds quite shocking in a really confronting chapter, but all of us, without exception, are like the men of Sodom. In whatever, form it might take for, in whatever form it might take for each one of us. All of us are consumed by wanton sexual promiscuity. Now, please don't mishear me. Please don't mishear me. Um, growing up in church, if that, was your, if that was you, it is easy sometimes to get the impression that sex is bad. But hear me once and hear me very clearly, and I don't want to say this again, sex is really, really good. Gosh, there's a whole Bible, book of the Bible that celebrates the joy of sexual intimacy. God created sex to be fully, freely, and frequently enjoyed within a marriage between one man and one woman. And, and He hasn't just done it because, oh, it's just right for God. No, He's done it because it's good for us. We don't often think about that, that sex outside a committed heterosexual marriage is not just sinful, no, it's self-destructive. It's not driven by love is driven by lust because look at the desperation of that lust in verse 9. The men of Sodom, what are they saying? They're saying, get out of the way, get out of the way. They're literally breaking down the door to feed their lust and satisfy their thirst and there's something almost primal about this mob, isn't there, as they revert to their base instincts of sexual desire and it's not just one or two men, no, this sexual revolution in verse 4 is gripping the men of the city. Both young and old, the whole population. This is not individual sin. No, Sodom is a city consumed by lust and corrupted by sin. It's a terrible place. So, what does Lot do? Well, he does, thank God, what is right. Plus one to Lot. He hides his guests, he protects them from the attacking mob. But you all know what's coming next, don't you? I mean, before we even think about praising Lot for his so-called heroism, just look at how he does it. I've got to say, reading these verses make me cringe inside. This is what he says. Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they've come under the protection of my roof. It's like, what the hell, right? Like, I know I'm not supposed to, I was in Malaysia, I accidentally said what the hell, but you're not supposed to say that. It's like, what the hell? I mean, what the heck, right? But here, it's justified, right? Like, what the hell, right? Like What kind of sick father are you? What kind of dad offers his daughters to be gang raped by a violent mob? I mean, I don't care how good your intentions might be. Whatever this hospitality crap is, no one cares, right? I don't even care about your cultural proclivities. It doesn't matter. That is messed up. The Bible doesn't shy away from how grotesque this is. And let's be clear, just because the Bible recounts an event, it doesn't mean that it endorses it. No, we're supposed to read these words and recoil in disgust. We're supposed to see that, okay, sure, there might be some remnants of righteousness in, that, in Lot, but no, otherwise Lot has been thoroughly corrupted by the sin of Sodom. No, no, this toxic culture, the toxic culture of this city of sin, has seeped into his moral bloodstream. The city, so depraved that it has corrupted even one of God's own people. Oh, I know. We read this chapter right and we think to ourselves, what kind of place is that? Thank God. Thank God, Melbourne is nothing like Sodom. But is it really? You see, I suspect that our city is more like Sodom than we care to admit. Just think about it. Um, our universities, it was a long time ago, our universities, they're defined by a culture of clubbing, aren't they? And it was really interesting. When I was in uni ministry, the number one question I got, apart from, is it okay to date a non-Christian, is, is clubbing a sin? That was the number one question that I got, right? But you know what? Let me let, me let my non-Christian friend answer this for you, right? My non-Christian friend, who's now 30, said, Adam, look looking back, the only reason why I went clubbing was to get a hookup, right? It was the only real reason to say, like, oh, we go for the music, please. <laughs> this week we've seen that even our workplaces, even Parliament House, is gripped by a culture of sexual abuse and even rape. Think back to stage four lockdown last year. Here's the fascinating one, right, that says everything about our culture. Do you remember the single exception that was made to the lockdown restrictions? It was to visit intimate partners. Just think about that for a moment. The one exception to the greatest restriction of democratic freedoms in the history of our state was made for sex. Now, I think Melbourne is more like Sodom than we care to admit. Someone said to me, Adam, 90% of men struggle with pornography and 10% are liars. It's not just men. One third of all visitors to adult websites are women. No, we shouldn't read Genesis 19 and think to ourselves, oh, please, that's not our city. No, 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 that is our city. And just like Lot, even we believers are radically corrupted by its culture. We like to think we're immune, it's the world out there, but actually, no, it's corrupted our hearts as well. And the men of Sodom, Get out of the way, breaking down the door to satisfy their sexual thirst. How many of us say get out of the way as we break down the door to pornography, sexual fantasizing, lusting after someone who's not our spouse, crossing every physical barrier short of sex before marriage? No, Melbourne is too much like Sodom, and we are too much like Lot and for all of its beauty. Marvellous Melbourne is a city under judgment. If you want to know what life is like in the city of sin, there it is. Let me ask you though, if you knew that a catastrophic disaster was coming for our city, what would you do? Seriously, what would you do? Not long ago, uh, I had a night off, which very rarely happens, and I was watching a rerun of the 2004 film, The Day After Tomorrow. It's not great, but, you know, Armageddon movies are good fun, right? Now, in that movie, Jack Hall, a climatologist, predicts that a new ice age will hit the world and it will wipe out most of the Northern Hemisphere. He really believes it, so what does he do? He warns everyone he knows. He even begs the US government, he says, evacuate everyone south of the Mason-Dixon line. But what happens when he warns them? The people don't just not believe him. No, they laugh at him. But but Jack Hall, he, he knows that a disaster is coming and he's willing to play the fool to save the world. He's willing to play the fool to save the world. Now, let me ask, if you knew that God was coming in judgment against Melbourne, what would you do? Would you warn everyone you knew? Would you be willing to play the fool to save our city? In verses 15 to 29, God comes in judgment against Sodom and what do his angels do? They plead with Lot, run for your life, run for your life. In verses 13 and 14, they tell him, Sodom is so corrupted by sin that Yahweh is coming to destroy it and anyone who remains will be swept away in the punishment of the city. They'll be caught up in the judgment of God. And just as they say, verse 24, out of the sky the Lord rains on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. God is literally scorching the earth. He's literally salting the earth so that this land will yield life no more. No, this place will be a place of eternal death. This, friends, right here, is a picture of hell. A place of eternal fire and judgment where no... Second chances are on offer. It's a shocking picture, isn't it? This is the most unPC sermon you'll ever hear. But let's face it, the severity of God's judgment matches the severity of Sodom's sin. God totally devastates a city that is totally depraved. You see, we need to understand God's judgment, it's never disproportionate and it's never unjust. And we see the severity of Sodom's sin. We recoil in horror at what Lot could have done. And suddenly we get it, don't we? We recognize the rightness of God's wrath. You see, living in a city of sin is living in a city under judgment. And yet, and yet, in His wrath, God remembers mercy. In his judgment, God extends grace. He provides a way of salvation. He provides a way out. Look at it. Four times, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in this passage, the angels are literally begging Lot to get his family out of there. Verse 12, get them out of this place. Verse 15, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 17, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains, you'll be swept away. Verse 22, hurry up, run to it, for I can't do anything until you get there. Chris, can you hear the urgency of their plea? God is coming to judge this city, get the hell out of here. In his righteous judgment, God provides a way out. He offers a shelter from the storm, a refuge from His wrath. You see, we need to understand, God, yes, He judges the wicked because He is holy. But He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No, the holy God who judges sinners is the merciful God who offers salvation. We need to read this. Yes, I know, it's hard to see anything but judgment here. But can you see that God is pleading with us? Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. If you're not a Christian, God is pleading with you, flee from my judgment, run from my wrath. In many ways, these two angels, they're preaching the gospel, aren't they? They're proclaiming a message of salvation, salvation anchored in the promises of God. Just think about it. Why in, the lo- why in the world would the Lord offer a way out for Lot? Why Lot? Well, it's clearly not because he's good. No, God, he just offered his two daughters to be gang raped by a violent mob. No, God doesn't offer salvation because Lot is worthy, he offers salvation because God is faithful. In verse 16, it's because of the Lord's compassion. In verse 18, it's because of His great kindness, literally, His grace. God offers a way out for us, not because of our goodness, but all because of His grace. It's because God keeps His promises. Look at verse 29. So it was, so it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, He remembered Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval. I remember Abraham and I bring you out of the judgment. I remember my promise to save your family. And now here I am delivering on that promise to save Lot. It's God's promise. God's promise that guarantees his grace to the least deserving and as we look at the judgment of this city, friends, we are actually seeing a picture of how God will one day judge our city. I hate to say I love our city, but Melbourne is a city under judgment. In 2 Peter 2.6, we read that the destruction of Sodom is an example of what is coming to the ungodly. You see, when we read this, we're seeing a precursor of God's judgment of the world. Just as Sodom was judged for its sin. One day, Melbourne will be judged for ours. And just like Sodom, the judgment that awaits our world will be a lifeless eternity of fire and sulfur. And anyone who does not run from sin, anyone who does not run to God, will be swept away in the judgment. If you want to know the core truths that Genesis 19 reminds us of, here they are. Heaven and hell are real. The time is short and Jesus is returning. And when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, everyone who does not trust him as their king will face an eternity far worse than Sodom. Can I tell you, I turned to Genesis 19 and I thought, oh, I should have stayed in Sydney one more week. But if you knew, if you knew a catastrophic disaster was coming for our city, What would you do? Would you stay silent out of fear of looking foolish? Or would you play the fool to save the world? Because in this sea of judgment, friends, God does provide a way out. Sodom's destruction need not be our destiny. The holy God who judges the world, He is a merciful God who saves His people. And just as He provides a way of escape for Lot, friends, I want you to know, He provides a way of escape for us. It's through the very same promise, the promise he made to Abraham, he fulfills in the death of Jesus. God promises to save his people, now he fulfills his promise to save by sending Jesus to suffer the destruction of Sodom in our place. Jesus who shields us from that judgment. If you're not a Christian, I know this this message is not easy to hear. But can I ask you just for a moment to put yourself in our shoes? If you believed that God was coming to judge our city for its sin, what would you do? I mean, surely you'd warn us, right? Surely you'd play the fool to save the city. Well, let me, if you'll indulge me, let me play the fool right now. Friends, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And if you don't live with him as your king, you will suffer that judgment. I will as well if I don't live with him as my king. So please, I'm begging you, run for your life. Run from your sin. Run to our God. God has made a way out. He will keep his promise. He will save you the Lord will be your salvation if only you would run to Him. You might think to yourself, what a fool. I'll take it. I'll take it. Brothers and sisters, let me ask, when was the last time you shared the gospel with that urgency? Not whether you use those words, but when was the last time that your heart was gripped by the urgency of judgment? Did you notice when Abraham warned his son's-in-law, what what did they do? They laughed at him. They thought he was insane. And you know what? I actually think there's something right about that. I think there's something right about that. If our gospel sounds so respectable, so palatable, and lacks the weight of heaven and hell, something isn't right. Because Jesus doesn't promise us a better lifestyle. If you want that, join Amway, right? He promises eternal life out of eternal death. To share the gospel is to sound the alarm that heaven and hell are real. The time is short and Jesus is returning. So let me ask one more time. When you look at our city, what do you see? When you look at our city, do you see what God sees? Do you see a city under judgment? a city that desperately needs the saving gospel of Jesus, do you plead for our city? Do you pray for our city? Do you weep for our city? Does your heart break for our city? Or are we like Lot and his wife? To captured by the city we're supposed to save. You know, I actually think the greatest tragedies of this chapter, and actually all of Genesis, are found in its smallest phrases. The first small phrase is right there in verse 16. As the angel is urging Lot to run for his life, we read three tragic words. But he hesitated. Are you kidding me? He hesitated? Lot didn't want to leave the city of sin? Then look now in verse 36, another small phrase. His family, they're fleeing the city of Sodom and what do we hear? What do we read? Lot's wife looked back. She longed for the city that had captured her heart. She'd rather die in the city of sin than live in the city of God. Oh, it's terribly sad. You see, just like Melbourne, Sodom is pretty much the ancient nearest most livable city. But look at what the comfort has done. Look at what the livability has done. No, it's not just the most livable city, it's the most captive city that there could possibly be. We love to live in Melbourne. Have you realised that? When people leave leave Brisbane, people are like, okay, right? But when people leave Melbourne, people go, why? Why would you do it? Flee Sodom? Why? Why would you do it? No, the city has imprisoned the heart of this household. It's blinded them to the severity of sin. It's numbed them to the urgency of judgment. You see, I actually think one of the greatest threats to evangelism is a love of comfort, and it's a love of our city. Because think about it, right? Why in the world would we want to save the world out of sin when we ourselves love living in it? How in the world can we call people to leave Sodom when our hearts are in love with Sodom? How can our hearts break for the lost when our hearts are captured by the world? It just doesn't make sense. We're pleading with people, flee from the world, flee to God. And our non-Christian friends are going, well, I know you look pretty comfortable there. Jesus warns us in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure, there it is, that's what she was doing, trying to make her life secure. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Friends, if you want to find true security, if you want to escape the judgment, if you want to save our city, then can I tell you here is what you do. You throw your life away for the sake of the gospel. You throw your comfort to the wind and you join with us in pleading to the world and to our city, run for your life, run from your sin and run to Jesus. Over the last few years I've been trying to understand. I've been trying to understand our city, right? I you know how Paul in Philippians says, you know, of the Jews, I'm the first, the Pharisee among Pharisees. Well, among Melbourne kids, like, count me up there, right? Well, I've been trying to understand the besetting sins of the church in Melbourne. So, as a son of this city, I'm going to cash in my chips all in one go. And I'm going to tell you what I think our biggest problem is. I could be wrong. Now, I'm not talking about us here, but I'm talking about the church and Christians in Melbourne. I suspect that one of our greatest sins in Melbourne as Christians... Is actually that we are too much like Lot and his wife. We may profess a genuine trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may even act works of righteousness from time to time. But we are too much in love with our city. Oh, we love comfort and we lack conviction. I can tell you my critique of Sydney another time, right? I actually think it's the inverse. I suspect that in our city we we are simply not convicted of that one day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. We're simply not convicted that unless we will run from their sin and run to His promise, they will be swept up in that judgment. I don't know about you, but that really burdens me. It breaks my heart. That's actually the engine that drives me each and every day to labor for the mission of God in this city. But I really worry that our besetting sin as Christians in Melbourne is we just don't feel the urgency of judgment. When we say Melbourne is the most livable city in the world, I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. That's not good. That is a spiritual problem. We love comfort and we lack conviction. We are not driven by the realities of heaven and hell. We are simply not willing to do whatever it takes to plead for our city to run to Jesus. When I was up in Sydney last week, um, I was talking with a friend of mine and she said to me, oh Adam, I'm just looking for a godly man to marry but, all the, but the problem is that all these guys, they just don't believe anything. They're nice But are they willing to sacrifice? What do they believe? Put something on the line. I pray that our church might be perpetually uncomfortable so that we might always see our city as it is, a city under judgment and a city in need of a savior. So here's my request of our church, a humble, kind request. Why don't we commit ourselves to this cause? Why don't we learn to see our city as it really is? Why don't we commit ourselves to raising up gospel workers, bankrolling gospel ministry, planting new churches, evangelizing our schools, our universities, and our workplaces? Why don't we be driven and be gripped by that deep gospel conviction that God's promise saves us from God's judgment? Why not have the ministry and the message on our lips be this run for your life? run from your sin and run to our Saviour. Why not tell the world with every breath that we have, the Lord is coming as a judge, but the Lord is coming as Saviour. He is our salvation. Will you, will you commit to that cause with me? And I know when I ask that, you're all thinking, oh, that's a rhetorical question. No, I'm actually asking you in your hearts right now, or if you really want, you can say it out loud. Will you commit to that cause with me? Will we be willing to play the fool to save the city? Are we convinced heaven and hell are real, the time is short, and Jesus is returning? Let me pray. God, we repent of hard hearts, cold hearts, worldly hearts. We are sorry for failing to see the seriousness of judgment, the depths of our sin and in so doing, diminishing the salvation that is on offer from the Lord Jesus Christ. May we call this city to run for their lives, to run from their sin and to run to their Saviour. And may we see in you not just our judge but our great Saviour, the Lord who is our salvation. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.